You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. We are accustomed in this country to our government's moving slowly and often secretly. It's a problem that comes up in so many of the stories we cover on this podcast. If only we had started doing this when we first noticed. If only this information had been made public sooner. If only it didn't feel sometimes like the folks in charge were asleep at the switch. Often, this is an existential thing. We can feel it happening and we can see the slow progress. But sometimes you can watch it happen in real time. Like today's story, for instance, which explores red flags raised by the government's own scientists about the risk of a commonly used pesticide. It looks at the length of time those risks were allowed to just sit with the government, while at the same time, people who understood what was happening watched as Europe and the United States immediately called for a halt to the use of this pesticide and phased it out in a matter of months. And yes, Canada eventually did the right thing and followed the leader. But even there, our phase out is longer and slower. It lasts three years instead of months, which means this pesticide is still in use right now. So what is this chemical? Why is it dangerous? Why is it still being used? And why do these things always have to take so long to get right? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Mark Fawcett Atkinson is a reporter and writer covering food, climate, plastics, and the environment for Canada's National Observer. Hi, Mark. Hello. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. I will start with a simple question then. What is clopyrifos and what is it used for? It's an insecticide. It's actually a, a nerve agent that was invented during World War II. It was until quite recently used very, very widely as an insecticide, both on crops and agriculture, on everything from wheat to canola to broccoli. And it's also used in structural uses, like buildings, for instance, if you're trying to prevent termites. And it's also used in forestry for some forestry uses. And it was commercialized in 1965 by Dow Chemical as an alternative to DDT that was nominally safer that's how it was kind of branded at the time. And it was very, very widely used. So like in Canada, the, the documents referred to in the story I was publishing, but it's kind of what led us to talk today. Had between 2008 and 2016, farmers were using about 360,000 kilograms a year. And that's just the one chemical of clopyrifos. So often pesticides are actually like the, the product itself that's going on the field is made from a blend of chemicals. We only monitored a specific chemical going in. So Essentially, what I'm trying to say is the amount of pesticides used is bigger than those 360,000 kilograms. It's just that the unique ingredient in them of clopyrifos is was that amount that we were using annually. And what can it do to people? Do we know about the risks of exposure to it? How dangerous is it as a chemical? So we've known about the acute exposure risks for ages. So essentially, if you're you know if you're in the fields handling it or somehow rather end up exposed to it kind of quite acutely. It can cause nausea, vomiting, and kind of, you know, it acts on, on the nervous system, right? And then there were several studies that came out kind of starting in 2000, 
and then going right through up until recently that are showing brain damage in fetuses, so kind of neural development damages. And then there's also just recently, and actually this is what was behind the EU ban on the pesticide, the EU determined that there was a risk of genotoxicity, so impacts on essentially how the, the gene expression in cells and you know, kind of linking that back to cancer. So a lot of not great things associated with it. Um, and some of them from very small doses, you know, like ex- acute exposure leads, you know, nausea, vomiting. But like the EU, for instance, ban was, you know, they couldn't quite determine what the, the threshold of danger was. So they, they just banned it because it could be very, very low, right? So you mentioned we started finding this stuff out in about 2000. You also just mentioned the EU has banned it. Can you kind of walk us through that timeline? Like, when did these concerns really start to crystallize and the ban happened across the pond? And what are we doing about it in Canada right now? So probably the earliest studies were starting around 2000. And there was kind of a steady trickle right over the next 20 years, essentially. On the regulatory side, what happened is... In Canada, we started, so under Canadian pesticide law, the government's supposed to review pesticides every 15 years called reevaluations. So for clopyrifos, that reevaluation started in 1999, actually, and was kind of chugging along until about 2007. At which point in the US, there were, you know, growing concerns around the pesticides coming out of independent, you know, kind of some of those studies that I mentioned in, you know, in the early 2000s. And the US EPA actually got sued by a bunch of health and environmental groups and labor groups over its kind of continued allowance of this pesticide. That case started in 2007 and ended in 2021. But meanwhile, Canada kind of looked at this happening in the States and was like, huh, let's wait and see what's going on. At least this is what, you know, the record seems to suggest. They kind of said, well, let's wait and see what's going to happen with the States, which is typical. We usually follow the EPA. So essentially, the entire Canadian review was put on pause until about 2015, 2016. Meanwhile, in the States, this lawsuit was ongoing. It was about to be banned right at the end of the Obama administration. Trump kind of reversed that decision. So there was a four-year extension once Biden came in. It, it got banned quite quickly over, you know, over to health concerns. Meanwhile, in the EU, they were doing their own regulatory and, you know, health assessments and determined again, kind of in, you know, around 2019, 2020, that there were issues and, and the US, it was banned for all food uses and agricultural uses in 2021. Meanwhile, in Canada, we following the EU and the US decided to phase it out in 2021 on a three-year phase-out timeline, which means that according to the timeline, the final use of it, I think, is permitted right at the end of this year in, in 2023. So during all that time, you know, from, from the point that the studies began to show uh, just how dangerous this might be, leaving acute exposure aside because assumedly uh, farmers and others are taking precautions, what do we know about how much of this stuff has made its way into food and water? I guess what I'm trying to get a sense of is, you know, it sounds really scary. The average Canadian, have they been exposed to this stuff? What do we know? Chances are you probably have at some point. So the looking at the, the Canadian data, every few years, the government does kind of a, a, a national health survey looking at a bunch of different indicators, including kind of urine tests. So in, a, I think it's 2017, they determined that the pesticide or a pesticide, like a breakdown product of the pesticide was found in 99% of urine tested. So quite common there. On the food side, they also test for food residue. 
there, the, the residue occurrence was significantly lower, both in Canada and the States. It was around 2%. So you can kind of take that, you know, how you will. Definitely, if you're, you know, if you're eating organic food, they don't use pesticides, so your chances of exposure are less, right? But that 99% of in, in your end is, you know, chances are you've, you know, people have been exposed. Whether those doses are dangerous or not, the, you know, the Canadian federal government says, no, we, we don't believe that that, that, is, that poses a danger, particularly because the, the trace amounts on food aren't very high. Um, the EU has taken a different course and said there could potentially be a risk here. So we're just going to ban it entirely. And I understand, you know, there's, there's back and forth about what levels of risk are acceptable. Can you explain what we know about what the levels are in, in drinking water in some places? And, and how do we know when we reach a level that could be impacting people's health and safety? So essentially in, in drinking water, and this I, I, I talk about in the article, we don't have great monitoring. And this came up in the internal documents I was reviewing that, you know, some of the, the government scientists were saying, well, we don't have perfect water monitoring. And we, it's not, we don't, essentially, we don't really have great data on how common this is. We know that it's widely used, but the water monitoring isn't super widespread. So what they did instead is, you know, the, the government has, has modeling systems, essentially, to try to figure out, you know, if it's used in a certain way, what's the likelihood that a dangerous amount will end up in drinking water or, you know, could end up in the environment in a way that could harm people. These models, which they ran between 2016 and 2018 about, showed that there could potentially be a risk with the uses that were allowed at the time, which were kind of several agricultural uses, greenhouses, um, forestry buildings. But that wasn't linked back to specific water monitoring data because the data wasn't there, essentially. <laughs> One of the things that your article got at and that I'd like you to speak about a little bit is just how opaque was the government and its regulators during this time that all these studies were happening? I feel like we just found out about it when they decided to phase it out after the EU banned it. But really, this had been going on for quite some time. There were concerns about this product. Oh, it was incredibly opaque. And that's 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 what these documents really show. There was a, a a public announcement that the you know the reevaluation started in the 90s there was a public announcement that it was paused and then it was pretty much crickets until around 2015 2016 when there was a, an environmental risk assessment that was made public and then in 2021 early 2021 there was a very very short decision where essentially they announced they're going to phase it out but without really much of a justification so environmental groups are kind of like what you know what's going on and actually sued which then prompted the government to in December of that same year December 21 2021 to put out a second decision, also announcing a phase out, but with a series of justifications behind, you know, kind of why they were making this this decision. But looking at the, you know, the internal documents that form the basis of the story, you can see that there's tons of back and forth within the department where they're debating, you know, what should be public, what shouldn't be public. Yeah. Can you get into that a little bit? Because it's fascinating to see how, you know, it's a relatively simple thing they're trying to do here. They're trying to phase out something that could potentially be dangerous, and they're debating how much to tell the public. Yeah. So I think the the most striking one for me, um, striking example probably, was around 2016, there was an environmental risk assessment that came out as part of the reevaluation process. And in that document, 
the initial drafts that kind of I saw looking through, you know, looking through these email chains had a section on the drinking water risk modeling, which the government had recently completed and showed that there could potentially be a risk to some populate, you know, some people, but there was still water monitoring issues around that. And that was eventually edited out. There was a ba- bunch of back and forthing over it, kind of, you know, various people within the department wondering, well, you know, do we keep it in? Do we keep it out? How much should we put in? How much should we not put in? And ultimately, it was just entirely deleted. So the public document that came out didn't even include any hint of that. And the can was kind of kicked down the road by the government saying, well, you know, we do this in two stages. We have an environmental assessment, and then we have a health assessment. We've done the environmental assessment. We're going to do the health assessment. And then they phased it out, which means that that process, that entire health assessment process never started. It, it, it never really got into gear and it won't now because the pesticide is banned. <laughs> so what does the government say now that the phase out is in place? Does that mean that they're acknowledging that this is in fact harmful? Oh, y- yes, definitely. And even the, the, what I mentioned earlier, where there were two decisions around the phase out, one that was very sparse. It was, it was literally a paragraph or two. And then a second one almost a year later, that kind of laid out a bunch of, of arguments. So they're, you know, they're definitely saying this this poses a danger. So why phase it out then? Why not just ban it the way other countries have done? So that's essentially the, the government's policy on all pesticides is to do a three-year phase out as opposed to an immediate ban. Why? Their justification is it's not dangerous. Their threshold um, is unless there's a serious and imminent threat, they kind of go with the standard three-year phase-out. And, you know, the logic there is it's less disruption to business, et cetera. So we're threading the needle here between admitting it's harmful but saying it's not immediately dangerous. Yeah. There's like a little lane in there we're, we're driving on? That's exactly it. As somebody who covers this stuff and, and who gets into the, these kind of bans and phase-outs and, and chemicals that can be quite complex, how unique is our approach to this? I'd say we're much more similar to the US EPA in our approach. The way I think about it actually is even broader than that. And this is, you know, as much for pesticides as for other chemicals that are, so pesticides are regulated under kind of pesticide-specific laws and other chemicals under the Canadian Environmental Protection Act. But Canada kind of takes the approach of, well, you know, we put pesticides out and then we determine if there is a risk and how can we manage that risk and are we managing that risk in a way that's appropriate. So it's, it's, it's really kind of, they call it a risk management approach, right? The EU, in contrast, takes a much more precautionary approach and says, if there is a potential that there could be a risk coming out of this pesticide, this chemical, then we're going to ban it until proven otherwise. So I think that's that, for me, that's really where the issue lies, is our approach is we're very permissive. We let stuff go on the market. We let stuff be used. And then if it's proved to be an issue, we put in risk mitigation measures or bans to reduce the harm, as opposed to saying, even before the product goes out, how could this impact people? And should it even be out there, right? After all of this back and forth, and finally announcing the phase out, which I believe you said goes until the end of this year, where are we at in terms of how much is still being used? And you know, right now, uh, when I go to the grocery store later this afternoon, should I be expecting trace amounts of this stuff in my food? If it's coming from Canada, not really. Okay. Yeah, potentially there there could be a little bit, but honestly, personally, I, I'm not particularly worried in Canada because the you know 
right at this point, farmers are just trying to use out the re- remaining stock that they have. Right. It's more for imported foods, which, you know, in in Canada, particularly produce, we're importing 60, 70% of our produce, right? Yep. It's banned in the US and the EU, but other countries still use it. We import food from all over the world. And currently, we don't really have any monitoring for that. You know, there's kind of spot checks by the CFIA, but there's no kind of comprehensive assessment of this. So yeah, essentially, if, you know, if you want to be really, really safe, buy organic food from Canada and you should be good. <laughs> or the States or the EU. Last question then. Presumably, this is not the last pesticide or widely used chemical that we will discover bad things about going forward when you speak to government regulators or try to speak to government regulators. Is there kind of an acknowledgement of a lesson learned here? Are there things to take away? Like, what would you what would you expect for the future? I, I think this goes back to the philosophy of you know, how the government thinks about chemicals in terms of risk management and mitigation as opposed to a more preventative approach until that kind of underlying philosophy of how we think about pesticides and chemical regulation changes. The government's going to say, you know, well, we are, you know, we're doing our tests, we're doing our assessments, and, you know, we think that our measures are, are strong enough, essentially, to prevent dangerous risk. For me, it comes down primarily to we need a shift in how we think about what we allow or not from the get-go before it's on the market at all. In terms of pesticides, we're currently undergoing a a process to shift um, or update rather is what, you know, the government's calling it, how we regulate them. From what I've seen and heard, that might end up giving more, you know, being better for pesticide companies and have, you know, kind of loosening regulation. Oh, good. Yeah, it's still the verdict's still out. And then on the chemical side, you know, we're we're currently in the midst of updating SEPA. Um, we're near the end of it. And again, the verdict's still a bit out, but neither of those processes changed the underlying philosophy of how, you know, how the government's thinking about risk and thinking about preventing danger, both to people and the environment, right? Well, it's good they're so transparent about it then. Oh, yeah. It's it's this kind of depth and decades-long record is is quite rare to obtain. So it's, it's interesting to kind of see the inner workings. It is fascinating. And thank you so much for uh, giving us a glimpse and walking us through it. Cool. Well, thank you. Mark Fawcett Atkinson, writing in Canada's National Observer. That was The Big Story, another special Saturday episode for you. When we have them, we bring them to you. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. But we don't want to let a good conversation go to waste. You can find more at thebigstorypodcast.ca. As always, you can find us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN and call us and leave a voicemail, 416-935-5935. This podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts, usually five days a week, sometimes six. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk on Monday.